0: From National Public Radio, it's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood in Bonn, Germany. Climate negotiators and environmental ministers from around the world gathered here say they're nearing agreement in their efforts to breathe life back into the Kyoto Accord on global warming. We'll assess the progress and the remaining hurdles on the road to implementing the treaty and meet some of the people charged with brokering the deal. And as negotiations here continue round the clock, host nation Germany is wasting no time. It's already moving fast to gain the edge as the world leader in technologies to fight climate
1: change. The future of German industry is not steel and not coal and not cement. It's it's high technology. There's a large gap to the Americans, for example. And the only change is to get any new markets. It's the energy efficiency market and the environmental
0: market. We'll have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth right after this. is living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood in Bonn, Germany, where there are signs of progress at the Global Warming Treaty talks. These negotiations stem from the U.N. Framework Convention to Fight Global Warming, which the U.S. and 150 other nations ratified almost a decade ago. That treaty failed to stem the rise in greenhouse gas emissions, largely because it has no penalties for violations. The Kyoto Protocol is an attempt to put teeth into the agreement, but efforts to final language since its adoption in 1997 had stalled, and the protocol almost died last year in the Hague. The problem? Nations are still balking at strict limits and enforcement mechanisms. And when U.S. President George W. Bush declared this spring he was against ratifying the Kyoto Protocol, it seemed all but dead. But it's not, at least right now. To bring us up to date on the course of this conference in Bonn, we go now to Living on Earth's Diane Toomey.
2: Climate conference chair Jan Pronk, in his first meeting with the press here, said that following the Hague disaster, he'd become much more optimistic that a deal was possible in Bonn. Then he caught himself.
1: But
3: please let me not raise expectations too high, um, otherwise I'm getting carried away, and uh, we shouldn't do that, and perhaps for that reason it would be better to stop.
2: Overshadowing the initial stage of the talks was the will-it-won't-it question surrounding Japan. After weeks of conflicting statements regarding that country's willingness to ratify the treaty without the U.S. involvement, the Japanese Environment Minister clarified her country's position, but just barely. It
4: is important that the U.S. participates. is the best scenario. And also it is important that we do not spend too much time waiting for the United States to come in.
2: Both are very important. But soon after that, all eyes turned to the issue of carbon sinks, which torpedoed the last round of climate change talks. At The Hague, the U.S. wanted large areas of forests and agricultural land to count towards its greenhouse gas reductions, since these areas soak up CO2. Critics say sink credits alleviate a country's need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Now with the U.S. out of the picture, Japan, Australia, Russia and especially Canada took up the cause of sinks. Canadian Delegate Noreen Smith. It is at its heart simply proposing that uh, countries that uh, wish to exercise the option of negotiating or or receiving credit for the comprehensive management of their forest resources. Uh, Simply negotiate uh, what that uh, forest management credit would be. The European Union countered, saying the proposal would allow countries to set up their own credit limits for sinks. Other EU descriptions of the proposal included unscientific and Pandora's box. It was time for a prayer.
5: Water on the earth, sunlight in the spirits, Hands and blind eyes continue to touch
2: us. As religious demonstrators called for divine intervention, an 11th hour compromise package from President Jan Prank was being circulated. It gave Japan and Canada their way on the issue of sinks, but also called for penalties should a country fall short of its emissions targets. The issue of binding targets had also been in dispute along the same fault lines as the sinks controversy. Earlier, the European Union had objected to provisions in the package, but as German Environment Minister Jürgen Trittin put it, time was running out.
6: The European Union is convinced that this proposal is a hard, for us, hard compromise. But under these circumstances, it is acceptable and it should be approved by all other parties. The adoption of this proposal leads to a regime that is legally binding under international law which will bring about real reductions in greenhouse gas emissions.
2: To what extent other nations will sign off on the compromise won't be clear until later this week. But when the conference wraps up on Friday, it's likely something will be agreed on, even if it's just to meet again. For Living on Earth, I'm Diane Toomey in Bonn, Germany.
0: With me now is Raul Estrada, ambassador from Argentina and vice president of the negotiations here in Bonn. Hello, sir. Hello, how are you? Nice to see you again. Tell me, when the dust settles this Friday, when all the... T's
1: are crossed and the I's are dotted. What will be the basic thrust of it? Well, first of all, that we recover the dynamics. This is, the, I think, the main point. Second, we have some progress on uh, things, defining how big the loopholes are, because the Kyoto Protocol has loopholes. Uh, but we have to define how big they are going to be. And that's one of the efforts we did. The other thing is to Know how the flexibility mechanisms are going to work. And we also have some progress on that. It's also a point to know how the developing countries are going to get uh, substantive help to adapt to the climate change and to mitigate emissions. And we also expect to have uh, progress on that areas now. Under this, uh present level
0: of agreement, Japan gets a lot in terms of, of sinks, that is using uh, trees uh, and such to sequester carbon, effectively reducing what they have to get out of industry, as does uh, Canada, Australia, and the United States, if it were a part of this. For the longest time, the Europeans
1: didn't want to do that. What do you think made them change their mind? What had been happening in the last years already, uh, from 90 to until now, from 1990 until now, It's not such a big amount. It's it's, it's relevant, but it's not uh, such a big amount. If you add all the numbers you have for all countries uh, to use for reduction of emissions, uh, it it amounts to perhaps 7% of the total they have to reduce. It's not too much.
0: Compliance has been a sticking point. In fact, the original convention about climate change that says that we should stop climate change, but there's no enforcement mechanisms, it really hasn't worked.
1: What about now? Are there real teeth in this agreement? <laughs> well, there is a, a, a great tendency to have a, a very strong uh, compliance agreement. My personal view is that it's very difficult to do that. There is not ch- such a thing in any other agreement today in force. Uh, countries are usually not willing to be subject to sanctions and particularly in this case where the source of emissions are going to be from private factors and and then you cannot penalize uh, countries. Uh, I think we have a lot to do still on that area. Uh, uh, There are many reasons because countries fulfill their commitments and treaties and a a system of compliance, control and sanctions is not the only one there is a lot of literature on that, uh, we have to uh, evolve in a way that some consequences are going to be clear if somebody does not fulfill the commitment, but uh, uh, no penalties to be imposed, no fines to be paid for. What message does this agreement send to the United States? The message I think people here, delegations here, are trying to send it to U.S., is that we are still working with confidence on that uh, protocol. We still think this is the way to solve the problem or to start uh, the solution of the problem. And we are protecting the interests of the US in the sense that all points requested by the US before, when they were in the negotiation, are there, and we are not changing that. This is still like it was before, and no additional conditions are added to the U.S. I want to thank you for taking this time today. Well, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be with you. While the climate conference
3: discussions here in Bonn remain a work in progress, the deal that appears to be in the works will do nothing to get the international community out of the Kyoto quagmire.
0: Glenn Kelly is executive director of the Global
3: Climate Coalition. The proposal does nothing to address the issues cited by the United States Senate when it voted 95 to 0 against the Kyoto approach in 1997. It is clear that President Bush's rejection of this fatally flawed process in favor of a global, technology-based approach makes more sense than ever. The deal is unfair to American taxpayers because it would increase consumer costs and possibly taxes. Meanwhile, Kyoto continues to exempt developing nations from reducing their emissions. China, for instance, is the second largest emitter and is on track to take over the lead in a few short years. India is not far behind, and yet they and others are still exempted. The deal is also unworkable. The United States, for example, would be forced to reduce energy use by approximately 40 percent under the Kyoto Protocol. Europe and Japan face similar reduction targets, and they each know from credible analyses that they can't meet their obligations. The new U.S. administration had a choice to make. Continue talking about the problem at international conferences without any hope of achieving a real solution or reevaluating the fundamental approach at hand. By rejecting Kyoto and proposing a bold, visionary approach to the climate issue based on sound science, market principles, technology solutions, and global participation, President Bush has challenged the world community to rise to the occasion and recognize that the Kyoto quagmire has doomed nations to endless negotiation over a fatally flawed treaty. Although delegates here in Bonn refuse to accept this fact, we should all hope that by the next time they gather in Marrakesh later this year, they will be prepared to work constructively with the United States toward a more achievable and more effective approach to climate policy for this and future generations.
0: Glenn Kelly is Executive Director of the Global Climate Coalition, an industry association in the United States. Coming up, German technology leads the way in the fight against climate disruption. First, this technology note from Cynthia Graeber.
7: Heavy metals in wastewater pose a threat to human health. For instance, high levels of cadmium have been linked to digestive problems and to certain forms of cancer. And mercury can cause problems with fetal development and nervous system damage. At the moment, the only way to look for the presence of metals in water is to remove a sample and test it that's expensive and time-consuming, and it only gives a snapshot of conditions at that moment. Now, researchers from Brigham Young University have developed glowing molecules that they hope will solve the detection problem. It works like this. There are molecules that attach themselves to the electrons floating around in metal ions. Now for the glowing part. These scientists have developed another substance that they've attached to the molecules. And this substance, once bound to the metal, is what glows under ultraviolet light. The detector for zinc turns an orangey yellow, the one for mercury glows green, and cadmium produces a bluish tint. Scientists are now working to anchor these molecules in quartz. Once they do that, they hope to be able to leave that rock in the water in order to continuously monitor its pollution-detecting glow. That's this week's Technology Note. I'm Cynthia Graber.
0: And from the climate change talks in Bonn, Germany, You're listening to Living on Earth. living on Earth, I'm Steve Kerwood at the Climate Change Negotiations in Bonn, Germany. The Climate Change Parley isn't the only event drawing international crowds to Germany. Every July, the town of Bayreuth hosts the Ricard Wagner Vespiel. Now that's a month-long celebration of the composers' enduring operas. Wagner is best known for his ring cycle of operas based on the Germanic legends of the Nibelugan, a tribe of rather unpleasant cave-dwelling dwarves. Now, some people say the famous seven dwarves who fraternized with Snow White are modern descendants of the Nibelugan. If so, somewhere along the line, Snow White's buddies became a lot more jolly than their ancestors, with the exception of Grumpy, of course. They did keep up the traditional dwarf occupation of mining and metalsmithing, though. And it is this Nibelung love of gold that kicks off the first of Wagner's works, Das Rheingold, in which the dwarf leader steals the gold of the Rhine maidens. The Nibelungs hammer the gold into a ring that bestows master of the universe status on whoever holds it. But no one holds it for long. There's a curse, there's murder, there's infidelity and incest. And along the way, the gods start to wonder just who's in charge anymore? By the time the four operas end, the Rhine bursts its banks, the rain winds up lost at the bottom of the river, and the world is on fire. Now that's a story of global warming. And for this week, that's the Living on Earth Almanac And the first precautionary
3: measure is to agree to cut greenhouse gas emissions and to help each other
0: to do so. There's a good reason why the United Nations climate negotiations are taking place here in Bonn, Germany's old capital. Germany, you see, wants to be seen as the world leader in efforts to curb global warming. So when the Germans decided to move their capital back to Berlin after unification, they offered part of their old government complex to the UN Climate Change Convention. The gesture is both symbolic and practical, and a quintessential German response to new global realities. Living on Earth's Chris Ballman reports on what's at stake for Germany as crusader against climate change. His story begins in the new German capital, Berlin.
8: At a rally in the shadows of the Reichstag, just steps away from where the Berlin Wall once divided East and West, two men argue over the state of German democracy since reunification. This is the new Germany, and once shunned topics like communist evils and Nazi horrors are now openly discussed. Germans are putting the past behind, and many here say it's time to play a more assertive role on the world stage. And Petra Holzrup of the German Council on Foreign Relations says climate change is the perfect vehicle.
4: This, I think, comes from that Germany has found a topic where it could play a leading role without being accused of trying to dominate everybody else.
8: German concern for the environment isn't a new political maneuver. Germans got a wake-up call in the late 1970s when acid rain began destroying their beloved black forest. Later, Chernobyl sparked a fear that's led to a government pledge to dismantle the nation's nuclear industry. Anja Cohen of the German League for Nature and the Environment says recent soul-searching over past sins has sparked a new environmental awareness.
4: We cannot go into this uh, trip anymore about saving the world the German way because, I mean, we did pretty ugly things with that. No? But the general thing is I would, I would phrase it more positively. I would have a feeling, yeah, also there were some lessons learned. And one lesson is that you should not take up more space than is due to you. And this is what you do in climate policy. If uh, the industrialized country emits so many climate emissions, this is using up more space. And then this is a form of imperialism and a form of corruption, which is not good.
8: If Germany is setting the world agenda on climate change, it's doing so by setting an example at home with a plan to cut carbon dioxide emissions 25 percent by 2005. That's our goals. And that's Franz Josef Schaffenhauser. He's the man overseeing Germany's CO2 reductions, and he says that from the factory to the farm, in the home, office, and automobile, emissions must be cut.
5: That's not only for environmental reasons, but also for restructuring our economy, restructuring our society,
8: creating new jobs, creating new technology and being prepared for the future. Germany reduced carbon dioxide emissions 15% by shutting down East Germany's old, dirty industries and replacing them with modern facilities. Today, the emphasis is on cutting energy demand in homes and buildings. Restoring Berlin as Germany's capital has created what is likely the world's largest construction site. Giant cranes fill its skyline, and the din of the hammer is everywhere. With government loans and building codes that mandate energy savings, the architects of East Germany's remaking are going green. There are simple measures, like sensors in rooms that keep lights off until you enter, and subway escalators that don't move until you step on them.
6: Other plans are far-reaching. You can see the skyline of Berlin and the supplying area of this power plant. All these buildings are connected with this power plant by pipes, underground pipes, and especially the Potsdamer Platz by combined pipes.
8: From a platform outside the control room, Andreas Naumann can see the 60,000 homes and 500 businesses that get their heat and electricity from the Baywag cogeneration power plant. When this was East Berlin, the plant burned oil. Now, natural gas and a high tech feed loop system produce energy far more efficiently. And Naumann says that means less pollutants going up the smokestack. The CO2
6: emissions are reduced by nearly 80% in comparison with the old power plant. And the CO2 reduction by the work of the new power plant is 1 million tons per year for Berlin. Cogeneration is
8: Germany's main avenue to reach its next carbon dioxide emissions target. And last month, government and industry agreed to double the output of cogenerated power with incentives to build new plants and refit old ones. Other solutions to Germany's CO2 reductions are literally blowing in the wind. Giant spinning rotor blades could help Germany meet a lot of its future energy demands. I'm at the Kletzwitz wind park, about 50 miles south of Berlin, and I'm about to get a bird's eye view of Europe's largest wind park. Uh,
1: we are go up.
8: <laughs>
1: Some upstairs. Okay. <laughs>
8: Park manager Henry Leuvenhart prepares a tiny open lift to carry us up to the turbine. There's only room for two, so our translator, Paul Reed, must don a safety harness and climb a stepladder 255 feet to meet us at the top.
5: All bungee jumping is not allowed.
3: <laughs> oh, God.
8: The turbine is about the size of a Winnebago. Inside, a computer controls the tilt and the speed of the rotors. A generator, a transformer, and a noisy cooler take up the rest of the space.
3: In order that this, this trip up here is worth it all, we're going to take a wonderful look at the, the, the
5: scenery around us.
8: Henry opens a large flat and below us, like giant pinwheels stuck in the earth, lie the park's 44 high-tech windmills. At full capacity, they make enough electricity to power 100,000 homes. Then, Henry tells us that this wind park sits on the remains of what was once Europe's largest open pit mine.
3: And you can notice from up here also the the contrast between the the destruction of the old energy production of the the mines where the landscape was completely uh, altered and changed to the new high-tech and alternative source of energy that the wind park provides which is yet a cleaner and more environmentally friendly and safer production
8: source. By the end of the year, 10,000 wind turbines will dot the German landscape. They'll provide only about 2% of the nation's electricity, but renewable energy is key to the government's plan to wean the nation off nuclear power. The incentive for investors is a new government law. It guarantees renewable energy producers a price for the power they generate that's much higher than the energy made from fossil fuels. The government effort to jumpstart the industry does not sit well with some economists. Norbert Walker of the Deutsche Bank Group says the de facto subsidy ignores market realities.
1: Uh, I guess here we probably have gone a bit overboard. It is very obvious renewable energy is something that can only be established over decades rather than years. And you cannot possibly leave uh, existing capacities unused and not pay a price for it. So if you shut down your nuclear energy plants, uh, then of course this has a cost for the economy and this has to be borne by the taxpayer.
8: German policies to produce clean energy come with a huge price tag. Modernizing East Germany's industrial sector is estimated at about $75 billion a year, other government programs range from 20 to $50 billion. Then there's the eco-tax. This gradual increase in petroleum prices is meant to curb demand and spur development of alternative fuels. It drew loud protests from truckers and farmers when it was introduced last year. And Petra Holtrup of the German Council on Foreign Relations says the public's pocketbook may be wearing thin.
4: I know that the uh, support for climate change policy in general is around 80 or 90 percent, but it depends how you ask. So if you connect this to, and what's about our green tax? Would you like to uh, hire this up for about I don't know 3 DM per liter, which is in comparison to America, let me see, a gallon has about 3.8 I think liter, which is six or seven dollar per gallon. Would you willing to pay this? I don't know. Well, the Germans are not willing
8: to. Talk of an increase in the eco tax is so sensitive, Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder says he won't discuss the matter until after the next election. Meanwhile, Germany's CO2 emissions from cars, trucks, and other transport are up 11 percent this year. Recent reports also show industrial output rising faster than expected. Take away the CO2-free energy produced by nuclear plants – and Germany may wind up in the embarrassing position of failing to meet its own targets.
4: And they will get into real trouble now because now they try to play a leading role in implementing and uh, putting into force the Kyoto Protocol, and they can't go back without
8: losing their face. If and when Germany meets its emission targets may be a moot point, the restructuring of the country's energy sector is well underway. Analysts call it a no regrets investment in the nation's economic future. Marcus Kurzil, science coordinator for Germany's environment minister, says already 100,000 jobs have been created and the biggest gains are yet to
6: come. If we are the uh, first to bring new technologies forward, it's probably us to be the number one in exports.
8: Germany's environmental exports are growing up to five times faster than exports overall. It's already the world's lead supplier of renewable energy products. And one market just to the east is all but guaranteed. At a coin mint in Berlin, a machine spits shiny new euro dollars into a sorter. The euro goes into circulation throughout most of Europe next year, and Germans like the sound of the future. Twelve Eastern European nations are in line to join the EU. But to gain entry, they must meet strict environmental standards. And Felix Christian Mathis of the UCO Institute says German technology is standing by.
1: The only chance for prosperity in Germany is, is export, because the future of German industry is not steel and not coal and, and not cement. Uh, it's, it's high technology, because in the information technology, there's a large gap to the Americans, for example. And the only change is to get any new markets. It's the energy efficiency market and the environmental market.
8: The odds of this German gamble are affected by the climate negotiation process. Germany is pushing hard for the Kyoto Accord. The more nations that ratify the treaty, the more nations will need the technology to implement its emissions reductions. And Germany is poised to supply them and fulfill its climate change mission to do well by doing good. For Living on Earth, I'm Chris Ballman.
0: From the climate change talks in Bonn, Germany, you're listening to NPR's Living on Earth. Time now to follow up on some of the news stories we've been tracking lately. You may recall our reporting about socially responsible investing. That's when people put their money where their values are as they manage their finances. A new index called FTSE for Good is being launched to advise investors on how public companies stack up on such issues as the environment and human rights. William Alton chairs FTSE Americas. He says the index will pressure firms to defend their records. They can't avoid the issue um, because it will be clear to everybody that if they're not in the index and we will tell the world at
5: large why uh, they're not in and where they failed, there's no hiding from that.
0: Tobacco interests, weapons makers, and nuclear power purveyors are excluded from the FTSE for Good Index. There's a setback in a controversial plan to train wolves not to attack livestock by zapping them with shock collars. One of the wolves that went through this aversive conditioning is now being blamed for the death of a calf in Montana. But Ed Bangs, who heads the Federal Wolf Recovery Program, says these animals would have been killed if they hadn't gone through the program. Sparing them, if only for a season, he says, has benefits. Two of these wolves became fathers this spring.
6: We have two extra litters of wolves in the greater Yellowstone area because of our attempt to use these wolves in that research and then release them back into the wild. So from a biological standpoint, the program was successful, even if we didn't really teach them, we don't think, to avoid cattle.
0: The scientists aren't giving up, though. This fall, another wolf pack is scheduled to receive aversive training. A Missouri wildlife reintroduction program has hit a snag. The state has decided not to bring back elk herds after all. The reason? Fear that elk can carry a form of mad cow disease, known as chronic wasting disease. While there's no evidence chronic wasting disease can spread to people or cows, Stephanie Ramseys of the Missouri Department of Conservation says there are just too many unknowns to go ahead with the
9: program. There's not a cure. There's not a live test. Uh, We felt that the risk was too great. Uh, We have an excellent wild deer population here in Missouri that we've worked hard to rebuild. And, of course, there are also agricultural concerns.
0: Missouri could change its mind if scientists learn more about the disease. In the meantime, some elk are coming into Missouri on their own from neighboring states. And finally, you may recall the possum problem we reported on in New Zealand not long ago. Well, some entrepreneurs there have decided to try putting a lid on the problem of too many possums, literally. They're marketing possum meat as pet food in a can. The brand name? You guessed it, poss yum. And that's this week's follow-up on the news from Living on Earth. Just ahead, a gambler's eye view of the odds of serious climate disruption. First, this health note from Diane Toomey.
2: For thousands of years, humans have relished the flavors of spices in our foods. But we also may have been enjoying another benefit from those substances. Many spices, such as garlic, pepper, and fennel, kill bacteria and fungi in food that can make us sick. Cornell University researchers set out to see how well various cultures made use of this antibacterial property. First, they looked at traditional meat recipes from 36 countries around the world. All of them called for bacteria-killing spices. What's more, recipes from hotter countries, where bacteria grow more quickly, contained a higher concentration of these spices. But researchers wondered how much early cooks actually knew about the safety benefits in their spice cabinet. They decided to compare meat dishes with vegetable dishes to find out. Plants are protected against bacteria by natural chemicals, strong cell walls, and a high acid level. This protection remains intact even after some cooking, so vegetable dishes should need fewer protective seasonings. The researchers hit the recipe books again. In all 36 countries, vegetable dishes called for far fewer spices than meat dishes. It looks like our ancestors chose spices for more than their flavor or fire. That extra punch in the dish may have also kept them from getting sick. That's this week's Health Note. I'm Diane Toomey.
0: And from the climate change talks in Bonn, Germany, you're listening to Living on Earth. Living on Earth, I'm Steve Kerwood in Bonn, Germany, for the climate change negotiations. And when it comes to global warming, the amount of information out there can seem overwhelming. There are studies upon studies predicting just how much carbon could be released into the atmosphere in the coming years and how the planet might respond over the next 100 years. Many of the studies have come up with similar results, but there are some important differences as well a group of scientists and economists has come up with a way that tries to make sense of that range of possible outcomes. They reviewed a 100 different global warming scenarios generated by computer models. They crunched the results and gave them odds. Then they used the numbers to make pie-shaped wedges and pasted them onto a giant gambling wheel, like the kind you might find at a casino or TV game show. Just before I left for Bonn, I went to visit Ronald Prin. He's the co-director of this project. I found him and his global warming version of the Wheel of Fortune in his office at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. We call it the greenhouse
5: gamble, somewhat tongue-in-cheek in in saying that. The special aspect of the Wheel, of course, is that in this illustration of the odds of various amounts of warming, if we don't enact any policies... You only get one spin, and whatever it lands on, you live with. So if it lands on the greater than 8 degrees Fahrenheit, and you see this, you know, the odds are not zero. You could land on the eight degrees, greater than 8 degrees Fahrenheit, and then obviously we will be, we will be in deep trouble.
0: Well, it's time to give the wheel a spin. Go ahead, Professor Pratt. Let's find out what's going to happen to the planet. Bingo, 3 to 4 degrees Fahrenheit rise.
5: That's right in the middle of the range. And maybe no surprise, it's one of the biggest slices of the pie. Uh, we would have very high probability that we were going to either land on 3 to 4 or 4 to 5 degrees Fahrenheit.
0: It's just on the line between 3 and 4 and 4 and 5. Exactly. What would that mean for this planet? Th- that amount of warming globally
5: is not the amount of warming that you would get in the tropics or the poles because the warming is uneven. There will be a lot more warming in the polar regions than in the tropics. So 4 degrees Fahrenheit global average increase in temperature would correspond in the, in the uh, Arctic and Antarctic regions to perhaps uh, 6 or 7 degrees Fahrenheit rise of temperature there. So one would begin to really worry at that point about the stability of the uh, ice sheet the stability of the boreal um, forest regions, the stability of the tundra regions. What are the implications of that? Well, the ice sheets in the high latitudes are important in a number of ways. First, they do contain a lot of water, and uh, if they melt, uh, then they contribute to sea level rising. Sea level will rise with global warming anyway, and that is because when you heat up water, the ocean water, It expands. Uh, Most of us are familiar with the fact that when you heat things up, they tend to expand. Well, ocean water certainly behaves like that. So, along with this global warming we're talking about here, we would project uh, perhaps uh, up to maybe a half a meter of sea level rise that could accompany this uh, this
0: amount of warming. Okay, here we are at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, We're on a river, the Charles River. It's beautiful out there today. If there were a rise in the ocean, it's just down there at a dam. What would things be like here at MIT?
5: Well, we would have uh, we would have a couple of hundred years to to adjust to it. Uh, one presumes that if we wanted to keep MIT uh, where it is now and not move further inland, that uh, with the help of the rest of the city of Boston, that uh, we would increase the size the height of the dam and uh, construct similar uh, systems, dike systems, around the city of Boston to uh, protect the low-lying areas. Perhaps the rich countries could afford to build dikes to preserve New Orleans, for example, uh, which would be one city that uh, would be certainly uh, susceptible to sea level rise. But what about the folk in Bangladesh where routinely already... Uh, significant fractions of their coastal land area get inundated when they have large typhoons. Even a half a meter sea level rise for Bangladesh would be a very, very serious issue for them. Now, what about
0: the odds of not having much of anything at all happen with temperature change on the planet? Yeah.
5: Next to the greater than 8 degrees Fahrenheit is one that says less than 2 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's a very small amount. It's about equivalent to what we've seen over the last 120 years in warming, and we've survived. So if we landed if uh, on the less than 2 degrees Fahrenheit uh, small slice there when we spin the wheel, then uh, we can count our lucky stars, right, that the uh, global warming is not going to be uh, anything that we should be deeply worried about. So, all
0: right, I'll give it a spin here.
5: Seven to eight degrees Fahrenheit this time.
0: Oh, my. So what does that mean? Well,
5: this is the outcome that nobody would want. We would be looking at uh, something like maybe 12 degrees Fahrenheit or more temperature rise in the polar regions. This amount of global warming uh, in the middle of the uh, continents could mean significant drying out. This amount of global warming would certainly be accompanied by more rainfall in many areas of the world because higher ocean temperatures mean more evaporation, more total rainfall. The difficulty at the end is we don't know where we're going to land on the wheel. And the challenge for policy, for make, policy making, is to uh, replace the wheel that we have here by one in which has much smaller slices. Where you're getting the high amounts of temperature rise, and much bigger slices where we're getting relatively small amounts of temperature rise. So that's the aim, that would be the aim of a policy to change the sizes of the slices in this wheel.
0: Ronald Print is professor of atmospheric chemistry here at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He also directs the Center for Global Change Science. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Canada's government has made it clear that for now, at least, it's not going to ratify the Kyoto Protocol. It says it's waiting for the U.S. to come along. But Canada's official response isn't stopping the residents of one of its towns. The people of Perth, Ontario, are already reducing greenhouse gases with a program they developed themselves. Karen Kelly reports.
9: It's my garden. And it just keeps getting bigger and cutting out the grass. I mean, the idea, what we're trying to do is mulch more. Maureen Pegg stands on one of the few remaining pieces of grass in her backyard. She recently mulched most of the footpaths. Everything else has been taken over by a jumble of tiger lilies, raspberry bushes, and rows of vegetables. Peg says it's only a matter of time before her grass disappears altogether. This is just a conservation measure. And it's less water you use, less energy you lose in the long run. In the front yard, Maureen's husband Sid is drawing long straight lines with a push mower.
0: As a kid. I had to use one. They save electricity, don't use gas, and it's very good exercise for me.
9: Conservation is part of the PEGs' everyday life. They use rain barrels to collect water for the garden. They compost their weeds and food scraps, reducing their garbage. They disconnected their dishwasher, and now they throw the soapy water on their plants, and they leave their car at home. The PEGs see these as baby steps in the fight against climate change, but they believe their actions can make a difference. I think I've become much more aware of things that, little people can do, that it doesn't have to be the government doing it for you, that it, it can come from the bottom up.
0: It's the right thing to do, and we taught that to our kids. And um, if more and more people get involved, it's better for the environment.
9: The Pegs have always tried to conserve, but say they've taken extra steps since their town pledged to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions 20% by the year 2010. The drive is being led by a non organization called EcoPerth, the group was started in 1999 with the help of a federal grant. Its mission is to make their hometown of Perth, Ontario, the most climate-friendly community in Canada. Alfred von Mirbeck is one of EcoPerth's founders. He says they saw an opportunity to make climate change a local issue.
6: If we could get people ready to come on board, they would understand a real big picture of what this is about. And and so here was an opportunity to work with that at so many different levels and try to get people to embrace a, a it's sort of more eco-efficient way of being, and, and more particularly we can do it in our little community.
9: In some ways, Perth seems ripe for this transformation. It's a town of just 6,000 people with a healthy dose of artists, farmers, and city folks in search of a simpler lifestyle. There are also big cars, fast food, and the trappings of modern life. Von Mirbeck says they realize that most people aren't going to change their lifestyle to address a global problem like climate change. So EcoPerth mainly focuses on economics and quality of life. Greenhouse gas reduction is presented as an added benefit. The group's motto is awareness through action.
6: So you just said, well, let's, let's do the actions. If people see the actions, then they'll understand what we're doing.
9: Actions like the Local Flavor Campaign, which links local farmers with stores and consumers. Not only does this increase support for neighboring farms, it reduces the fuel spent on long-distance deliveries. EcoPerth also convinced the police to adopt bicycle patrols. And they sponsor tire pressure clinics to improve cars' fuel efficiency. Von Mirbeck says EcoPerth's job is to make it easy for people to do the right thing.
6: They don't have to know why we're doing it particularly. They may be doing it because it reduces a parking problem, not because it reduces CO2 emissions. But once they come on, if they see that they've been involved in five or ten EcoPerth actions, and they understand now that those all actually have CO2 benefits to them, then they'll embrace it.
9: Ecoperth estimates that so far, about 10% of the townspeople have taken steps to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, and they're hoping those folks will serve as role models for their neighbors.
3: Uh, it's also wise to put a little
6: bone uh, meal That's the phosphorus source.
9: At the Perth annual tree sale, volunteers offer advice on energy-efficient landscaping. They suggest planting evergreen trees to block the winter winds and shrubs around the house to prevent heat loss. And they point out that air conditioners don't have to work as hard when they're shaded by trees. Brochures explain that a single tree will remove 10 kilograms of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere every year. If it's planted for energy efficiency, EcoPerth estimates it'll help remove 100 kilograms of CO2. Perth resident Kathy Wilson is planting trees to reduce wind exposure and provide shade. I think it's really important because of the value of, uh, of the trees and what they put back into the environment and the cleansing effects of the trees. More than 18,000 trees have been sold over the past three years. That's an average of three trees per Perth resident. The group draws people into programs with discounts and the promise of savings on their energy bills. For instance, rain barrels are sold at cost, and EcoPerth uses federal funding to provide discounts on solar hot water systems. Von Mierbach says they try to appeal to the things people care about.
6: That's the sort of, you know, carrot-stick combination that we're really hoping um, gets people on board. So they say, okay, if, if you're going to help me part of the way, then I'm for sure I'll do this. And so it's, it's great from a greenhouse gas standpoint.
9: Using economic incentives has worked with the town council as well. Jim Connell climbs a narrow staircase to the attic of Perth's Town Hall. He ducks to avoid hitting his head on the low beams, and then points to a 150-year-old stone wall layered with pink insulation.
6: Part of this project is to seal the, uh, the perimeter at the attic, reducing some uh, energy consumption that way.
9: Connell is the town's building inspector, and he's overseeing the energy retrofit of five buildings. The program includes installation of energy-efficient lighting, timed thermostats, and room sensors that automatically turn off the lights. Connell says EcoPerth initiated an energy audit of the town's buildings. Once councilors found out how much they'd save, he says it was an easy sell.
6: The major motivating factor is, is if you can carry out a certain amount of work and see the capital return in the energy savings, it only makes sense to do that.
9: The project will cost an estimated $260,000 American dollars. It's expected to save the town about $30,000 a year in energy costs. And the extra bonus is it'll reduce their greenhouse gas emissions by more than 140 tons annually. That's about 30 percent of the town's total emissions. EcoPerth's Alfred von Meerbeck says this example paves the way for a retrofit of larger businesses. It's expected all of these projects will help Perth achieve about half of its greenhouse gas reductions. It's also given the town a bit of notoriety. Last year, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities named Perth the most sustainable community in Canada. And the EcoPerth founders often travel to help communities interested in creating similar programs. Environmentalists like John Bennett of the Sierra Club of Canada say these grassroots projects are worthwhile, but the Canadian government has to do more.
5: We have not passed one law in Canada, not one law, that will make significant changes in our greenhouse gas emissions.
3: So we're not serious
5: about this. We're not serious at all.
9: But Neil McLeod insists the government is serious about climate change. He's director general of the Office of Energy Efficiency in the Ministry of Natural Resources. McLeod says the government sponsors voluntary programs for industry, and it's spending almost $720 million on climate change education and research over the next five years. McLeod contends tougher laws aren't necessary.
0: We prefer the voluntary approach in Canada, and we monitor it closely, and when we have a voluntary program in place and it works, we don't see any reason to have a bunch of laws and regulations, and it can just introduce a lot of bureaucracy. Sometimes you need to do that, but if you can achieve what you need to achieve without getting into all that, we'd rather try that first.
9: But the lack of existing federal legislation is discouraging for some residents of Perth. Sid Pegg is one of many who wonders why the government isn't doing more.
0: You can do a lot on the, on the grassroots level, but you still look to your leaders, which are the government. They have to take a big step, and they have to take care of all the air emissions and, and the pollution themselves. They're saying it, and they must do it. And then that will give the grassroots people more hope that what they're doing is the, is the correct thing.
9: Every time Sid Pegg uses his push mower or his composter, it gives him a bit of hope that he's taking a step in the right direction. He's not sure when or if the Canadian government will force the big polluters to make sacrifices as well. But until then, he and the people of Eco Perth will continue to take matters into their own hands and keep encouraging their neighbors to do the same. For Living on Earth, I'm Karen Kelly in Perth, Ontario.
0: And for this week, that's Living on Earth. Next week, once one of the most polluted places on Earth, Mexico City has just celebrated its first year in a decade without a smog alert. Air quality is improving, but city officials wonder how long they can keep the skies blue. We have, on the
1: one hand, the potential to have a cleaner city using newer technologies, but there is a race with the natural growth of the city in terms of more population, More cars, more trucks. Putting
0: off pollution in Mexico City next time on Living on Earth. We close this show from Bonn, Germany, with sounds from the Japanese city that bears the name of the treaty being negotiated here. Sarah Peebles recorded the subtle ambience of an outdoor temple in Japan's ancient capital, Kyoto. She calls it Revolving Life. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation in cooperation with Harvard University. Our production staff includes Anna Solomon Greenbaum, Cynthia Graber, Maggie Villiger, Nathan Johnson, Jennifer Chu, and Gernot Wagner, along with Peter Shaw, Leah Brown, Susan Shepard, Carly Ferguson, Mylisa Muniz, and Bunny Lester. We had help this week from Katie Saunders and Marie Jaya-Sakura. Allison Dean composed our themes. Environmental sound art, courtesy of EarthEar. Our technical director is Dennis Foley, Liz Lempert is our Western editor, Diane Toomey is our science editor, Eileen Balinski is our senior editor, and Chris Ballman is the senior producer of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood, executive producer. Thanks for listening.
3: Major support for Living on Earth's coverage of climate change comes from the Educational Foundation of America. Additional support comes from the W. Alton Jones Foundation and the Ford Foundation.
0: This is NPR, National Public Radio.